In a moment, we're going to read John 6, verse 27 down to verse 66. This is, of course, Jesus' bread of life discourse. And he is speaking in a synagogue. That's something you don't realize until down around verse 50-something. But he's speaking in a synagogue uh, to Jews in Galilee. We're going to be dealing with this this week and next week and maybe even after that. Two truths we're going to see this morning. Number one, God the Father has given Jesus to us. Any objections? Don't think so. But number two, we're also going to see that not only has God the Father given Jesus to us, but God the Father has given us to Jesus. God the Father has given us to Jesus. God the Father has not only predetermined every aspect of Jesus' earthly ministry, but He's also predetermined who would and who would not respond in faith to Jesus. In our passage in John 6, Jesus sets forth both of these truths. Why does He emphasize those two truths in John 6? Well, jump all the way down to John 6, 66. It says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. By the end of Jesus' bread of life discourse, where he presents himself as the bread of life sent by the Father from heaven, many of those who claim to be his disciples abandon him. And Jesus knows this is going to happen. Look in verse 64. But there were some of you, Jesus says, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So as Jesus speaks of himself as the bread of life in this discourse, he is anticipating and understands that soon, in just a matter of minutes, some are going to respond to his teaching by abandoning him. It didn't matter how resolute these disciples seemed to others, or how emphatic they were in their profession of faith. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew the condition of their hearts. So, in our passage, Jesus is anticipating this rejection. And in, in anticipation of that rejection, he shapes this discourse in order to address that defection. He does it in two ways. First, by emphasizing that it is God the Father who is behind every aspect of His earthly ministry. And second, by emphasizing that it is God the Father who is behind every genuine profession of faith. By emphasizing those things, Jesus will completely undercut His critics and His detractors. They will claim that He's come in His own name. He's come in his own name, he's come to do his own will, he's speaking his own words, he's performing his own works, and he's doing it all for his own glory. That's what they're going to claim. But he will emphasize that he has come in the name of the Father, and he's doing the Father's will, and he's speaking the Father's words, and he's performing the Father's work, and he's doing it all for the glory of the Father. And so, if you were to take John 6 and get out your highlighter, get out your colored pencils or whatever, by the way, that's a good practice, print out the Bible. Print out the Bible on a piece of paper, wide margin, double space, and mark it all up, right? Uh, But if you go through and you find repeated words in this passage, you're going to see a heavy emphasis on the Father. Over and over again, the Father, the Father, the Father. Jesus is showing that His ministry is entirely driven by the Father's will and the Father's work. 
Further, Jesus' detractors in John 6 believe that it's entirely within their power to accept or to reject Jesus, as if they can frustrate his earthly ministry by refusing to believe in him, as if he must meet the bar of their judgment. But he will emphasize that just as everything he does and says comes from the Father, so too those who believe in him have received their faith from God the Father. He will perfectly fulfill the Father's will by receiving every single person whom the Father grants the ability to come to him. At every turn in John 6, Jesus will show that it is God the Father who is at work in and through him and within everyone who believes. And so, let's read John chapter 6, verse 27, down to verse 66. And maybe you can look for those themes as we read it. Verse 25. No, verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him, because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. In our passage, what we said is that Jesus Christ is going to, he's saying a lot, but we're going to focus on this morning our two main truths. In order to undercut his detractors, those who would abandon him, he makes the point, first of all, that God the Father has given Jesus to us. And number two, God the Father has given us to Jesus. We're going to look, first of all, at how he makes those points. Verse 27, he says there, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. This is the first line of evidence or the first line of argumentation where Jesus is simply saying, I have come from the Father. What he's doing is he's setting up a scenario where those who reject him are going to have to come face to face with the reality that their rejection of Jesus doesn't expose Jesus as a charlatan, but exposes them as completely outside of the work of God. And so he says, I am the one upon whom the Father has set his seal. Well, what does that mean? It's, it's like the idea, it's like the seal of approval or a seal of authenticity. It's like a king who has a signet ring who might uh, press it into melted wax in order to uh, signal that that document that he has sealed uh, really is uh, coming issue, being issued forth from his throne. That's the idea. God the Father has attested to the fact that Jesus has been genuinely sent by him. So, in what way does God attest to the fact that Jesus is indeed his beloved Son? In what way has God the Father set his seal upon Jesus? Well, if you read John 5 and John 6, they're very similar uh, passages. John 5, Jesus is really stating the same truths of John 6, but to a different audience. John 5 is Jews in Jerusalem. John 6 is Jews in Galilee. But if you put those two things side by side, you see the same truths uh, really being taught. But in John chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus said, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Again, he's talking about here's the seal. Here's the evidence that I have come from the Father. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. 
His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now, a concern there is how one might know that Jesus has been genuinely sent by the Father. Since it wasn't valid for one to testify of himself, Jesus is appealing to some other witnesses, and he names three. John the Baptist testified of me. But he says, even greater than John the Baptist, he says, there's two other witnesses that testify that I have come from the Father. The first thing he says, it's my works. The miracles that I'm doing show that I've come from the Father because no one could do the works that I do except the Father is with him. John 14.10, Jesus said to Philip, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Then he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The works testify to the reality that I've come from the Father. For the sake of time, we won't go there, but John 10, 24 through 26, John 10, 37 through 38, say the same thing, even more explicitly. Believe that I've come from the Father because no other person could do these miracles. No one could do these miracles except they've come from God. And so that's why Jesus did miracles of mercy. Uh, He's showing that I have power that must be divine. Not only that, but I want you to understand divine character. And so he healed the sick and he made the blind to see and the deaf to be able to hear and even raise the dead. These miracles of mercy showing the character of God and the ability of God. These testify that Jesus actually has come from the Father. And so those are uh, part of that seal uh, that the Father has given showing us that Christ has come from him. Now, back to John 5, verse 36 to 38, Jesus then speaks of another witness. He says in verse 37, the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. How? He says, his voice you have never heard, his form you've never seen, and so on. He says, the father's born witness, and then he begins to talk about the voice of God. You have not heard the voice of God. What's the implication here? that in some way God the Father has testified to Jesus uh, vocally. Well, when do we see that happening in the New Testament? At Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's as if God the Father has taken a seal and just stamped it on Jesus and said, here he is. He's sent from me. And so he does it vocally, and he also does it through the works that Jesus performs. And so Jesus in John 6 is saying, I am the one sent from the Father. The Father has put his seal on me uh, as a sign of the authenticity and the genuineness that I am his son. So now back to John 6. After Jesus asserts that the Father has attested to his authenticity, that is that he really is the Son of God sent to do the Father's will, some in the crowd respond to him. Look in verse 28 of John 6. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They've kind of just ignored that incredible claim that the Father has set his seal upon Jesus, and their mind goes to maybe how they can earn favor with God. But then Jesus responds, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so he shifts the conversation back to his identity. I've been sealed by the Father. I've been sent by the Father. Your responsibility is to believe these things to be true. So, not only has he been sealed, 
but he has been sent. But he makes an explicit claim also that not only has he been sealed and not only has he been sent by the Father, but he claims that he has also been made the only source of eternal life. Look in verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. By the way, later on we we read about Jesus saying, eating my flesh and drinking my blood and so on, which is, you know, very hard to understand. But early in the chapter, he establishes for us that the eating the bread and drinking the blood, it really what that means is believing in him, right? And this is clear in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so the believing is as if you're partaking of uh, the flesh and the blood. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And so Jesus is sealed. Jesus is sent and Jesus is the source of eternal life. But notice in all of this, the emphasis is on the father, is on the father. Verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 32, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Verse 38, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son believes in him uh, and should have eternal life. At every turn, Jesus is pointing to the father. Why does he do this? Because essential to salvation, now this, listen, this is very important, especially if you're here and you're not a Christian. Essential to salvation is believing, that, believing what God the Father has said about Jesus and what he has done through him. We know this because in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father and says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. It's essential that those who would be saved recognize that all that Christ had came from the Father. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Essential to salvation is embracing the reality that Jesus Christ is sent by the Father. And so Jesus in John 6 is giving this crowd everything they need to come to him in faith and to receive eternal life. He's saying, I've come from the Father. Everything I have is from the Father. The works are from the Father. My words are from the Father. I'm doing the Father's will for the Father's glory. What is he doing? Laying it all out there. This is what you need to believe in order to be saved. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This morning, just as the crowd receiving those words from Jesus was given full revelation, everything they needed in order to be saved, so too this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what you need to understand in order to be saved. God in this moment has given you an incredible privilege to hear from the Word of God, from the lips of Jesus, what you need to hear in order to be saved. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, sent by the Father, attested to by miraculous works, and authoritative words, and ultimately his bodily resurrection, and he's the only source of eternal life, and so you must believe in him to be saved. So, do you believe that Jesus came in the name of the Father? 
doing the Father's will, speaking the Father's words, performing the Father's works for the glory of the Father? Do you believe that in doing so, He also gave Himself on the cross for the penalty of our sins? That He rose three days later and is now exalted at the Father's right hand? Do you believe those things? If so, then the words that Jesus would use is, come to me, come to Jesus. What is that? Believe in Him. And then be baptized in His name and continue as His disciple. Now, the sad thing is that although Jesus is giving this crowd all the revelation they need in order to believe, they're going to reject Him. They're going to reject Him. Many are going to reject Him. And that's where this passage is going. So, God the Father is behind every aspect of Jesus' earthly ministry. That's the first thing that Jesus is laying out in our passage. But next of all, back it up a little bit. In anticipating Jesus, in Jesus anticipating the rejection that's coming, his emphasis on God the Father that we've just seen serves two purposes. First of all, it provides all the revelation the crowd needed. We said that. But second, it serves to state with authority that anyone who rejects Jesus was actually rejecting God the Father. If they reject Jesus, they reject the Father. Anyone who refused to believe in Jesus was actually rejecting God's own testimony about Jesus. God says, here's my son. He has been sealed by me. He is the source of eternal life. I'm testifying to that reality. So then to reject Jesus is to reject the Father's testimony. There's no way around it. To become an enemy of Jesus was to become an enemy of God. That's why he's emphasizing the Father so much here. John 5.23 says explicitly, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This brings us to the second way in which Jesus shaped his discourse here in anticipation of the rejection that would come. First, again, by emphasizing that God the Father is behind every aspect of his earthly ministry. But second, he's going to do this by emphasizing that it is God the Father who is behind every genuine profession of faith. How does this anticipate the rejection that will come? Jesus is going to eliminate any avenue by which the crowd can claim that their fidelity to the Father is what requires them to reject Jesus. They're they're going to eventually crucify Jesus under the false accusation of blasphemy. They're going to claim that their rejection of him is in obedience to the Father. Jesus is going to completely destroy that line of reasoning. How does he do it? He's going to turn the tables on them and show them that their rejection of him does not prove that they're faithful to the Father but exposes the reality that they're completely outside the work that the Father is doing. Look at verse 35 and 37 through 37. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, what's essential to this passage is understanding that Jesus uses the idea of coming to him and believing in him synonymously. To come to Jesus is to believe in Jesus. And we see this here. Because 
He says in verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And there he's using those idea, uh, that idea of coming and believing synonymously. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's the same thing. But notice he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. He says, you don't believe, but everyone that the Father gives me will believe. What's the implication? He's saying, you don't believe because the Father hasn't given you to me. You don't believe because the Father hasn't given you to me. You're on the outside of the work that the Father is doing. These are some profound truths and some difficult truths, but they're biblical truths. He's giving us a glimpse at how our salvation is orchestrated by God the Father and carried out by Jesus. Amazingly, what he is claiming is that before anyone comes to Jesus and believes in him, that person is first given to Jesus by the Father. I mean, as clear as a bell. Uh, all that the Father gives me will come. So the giving precedes the coming. Is that really what he's saying? I mean, is that, is that backed up by any other passage in Scripture, this idea that those who come to Jesus are those who have been given to Jesus by the Father? Well, we already saw one this morning in John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, John 17, verse 1, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. To whom? To all whom you have given him. Interesting. According to Jesus' own prayer, he gives eternal life to whom the Father gives him. Verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. What we learn here is that not only is it right and appropriate and biblical to say that God the Father gives individuals to Jesus, but it's accurate to say that before they ever come to Jesus, They actually first belong to the Father. I I don't completely understand this, but this is clearly what it says. He says in John 17, 6, Yours they were, and you gave them to me. So in some way, in, in God's sovereign working of salvation, we understand that those who come to Jesus have been given to Jesus by the Father, and in some sense it can be said that those individuals first belonged to the Father before he gave them. I mean, this, it, it's, it's, the, the words aren't hard. They're there. It's plain. Uh, but ultimately, we're dealing with the mind and the working of our holy God, which is beyond us. Verse, John 17, verse 9, Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, he says. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, back to John 6. John 6, verse 36. See if we can maybe sort this out and maybe put it together a little bit. Jesus says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. What's the implication? Uh, You haven't believed, but all whom the Father gives will come. So, you know what? You're outside the work of God. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm going to give eternal life to all the Father gives me, because I'm come to do his will. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So taking John 17 and John 6 together, what do we learn? Well, some belonged to the Father. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. The Father gave these ones who were his to Jesus, John 17, 6. Then we learn in John 17, 6, that the evidence that some belonged to the Father and had then been given to Jesus, he says in John 17, 6, they've kept your word. They were yours. You gave them to me. I received them. They've kept your word. So the evidence that one has been given by the Father to Jesus is that they keep the words of Jesus. Next, we learn that all the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus. So uh, there's, no, there's no breakdown between the giving and the coming. All whom the Father gives will come. All And next of all, we learn that all that come to Jesus will receive eternal life. They'll never be cast out. They will be raised up on the last day. So God the Father, as a gift to the Son, gives individuals who will believe in the Son. You know, in the Old Testament, you know, obviously we've gotten past this in our culture. Was it ever part of our culture? I don't think so. Still part of a culture, other cultures, uh, where a a father may choose a bride for his son. Right? Some cultures are that way. You have arranged marriages. We had Timothy and Pravalika who were here from India. They were actually the product of an arranged marriage. Uh, It happens, and it happened in the Old Testament days among the Jews as well. That whole idea of a husband going and choosing a bride uh, for his uh, son. You see it with uh, Isaac and Rebekah in the Old Testament. This is kind of the motif here. God the Father is choosing a bride for his son. We know the church is, is referred to as the bride of Jesus, the bride of Christ. God the Father chooses that bride, gives that bride to the son, and the son gladly receives that bride and gives all uh, eternal life. That's the picture here. So in that sense... God is giving a love gift to his son, which is all who would believe in him. All who come to Jesus, evidencing the fact that they have been given to him by the Father, Jesus receives. He gives them eternal life. He doesn't lose any of them, and he will raise them up on the last day. So every believer is a love gift from God the Father to Jesus Christ, Christ, a gift which Jesus receives. Well, as Jesus continues his discourse in John 6, He continues presenting himself as the bread which came down from heaven. And the Jews in the crowd don't like this. They grumble, verse 43. Do not grumble among yourselves. Some of you might see where the sermon's going, and you're grumbling right now. Uh, This is strange teaching I've never heard before. Uh, Verse 43, Jesus says, do not grumble among yourselves. They're just like their ancestors. Just like the Jews in the Old Testament grumbled at Moses who led them out of the captivity in Egypt and was leading them into the promised land, so now these Jews are grumbling at Jesus. Uh, They grumbled at Moses. Uh, These Jews are grumbling at Jesus who's seeking to lead them out of the captivity of sin into eternal life. Verse 44, look what he says to those who are grumbling. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, that's very interesting. He's giving us even more insight into how God sovereignly works behind the scenes of salvation. 
Not only has Jesus stated positively that all who come to him are given to him by the Father, but now he states explicitly that no one can come to him unless it is the Father who draws them to Jesus. That word draw there is used elsewhere in Scripture, the idea of like drawing up a net full of fish into a boat. That's the same word. That's the idea. In some way, the Father likewise brings people to Jesus. Specifically, those people who first belong to the Father in some way. He draws them to the Son and He gives them to the Son. And the evidence of that is that those individuals then keep the words of Jesus or believe in Him. And then Jesus gladly receives them and gives them eternal life. So the Jews here are grumbling at the idea that Jesus was sent by God. As if their protests and their speculations about Jesus could help them arrive at the truth of Jesus' identity instead of just receiving the revelation from him. Jesus simply tells them to stop it. While they saw themselves as God's people, standing in judgment of Jesus, he turns the tables on them and says that their unbelief was evidence that they were outside the work of God, and ultimately that they were not among those who would be raised up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. That's Jesus' response to their grumbling unbelief. These statements are astounding. He's saying these things in a synagogue. Men, Jewish leaders, Jewish men, who not only believe that they're part of the people of God, but believe they have the authority to determine who else belongs to the people of God. Jesus is saying that their refusal to believe in him is evidence that they're entirely outside the scope of the work that God the Father is doing on earth. Who belongs to God? Who's counted among the people of God? Those who can show Jewish ancestry? Those who can say, I'm a child of Abraham? Is that who belongs to the people of God? No, Jesus is establishing a new paradigm. The entire makeup of the people of God is going to be transformed and is going to revolve all around one figure, Jesus Christ, upon whom the Father has set his seal. Everyone whom the Father gives to Jesus is part of the people of God. Everyone whom the Father draws to Jesus are part of the people of God. Look at what Jesus says in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Remember that from two weeks ago? John 6.45, he's quoting Isaiah 54, verse 13. That passage describes a renewed and restored city populated by God's people. He's saying that the day has come for the fulfillment of that prophecy. Instead of the people of God being made up of everyone who claims Jewish ancestry, whether they're a genuine worshiper or not, it will now be the case that the identity of the people of God will be determined by genuine faith, specifically what individuals do with Jesus, a faith granted by God himself. Now, this, of course, is a prophecy of the new covenant, or this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, one of the seminal passages where we read about the new covenant in the Old Testament says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, by covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. He's saying the day is coming when I'm going to work. I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to put my law within them. I'm going to write it on their hearts. What is he saying? Nobody's going to have to teach one another. Everyone who's part of the people of God will know me because they will be taught directly by me. You see that also reflected in Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 28, which we won't go to for the sake of time. But in Jeremiah 31, verse 34, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, No Yahweh, for they will all know me. No need to evangelize among the people of God because everyone counted among the community are genuine believers. Everyone counted among the community of believers has first been taught by God himself. And what will they be taught? Well, back to John 6, verse 45. Jesus says, they will all be taught by God. What will they be taught? This. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The Father teaches what? About Jesus. All who have heard and learned from the Father come to me. And we know that that's synonymous with believing in Jesus. So the people of God are made up by those whom God the Father sovereignly reveals knowledge about Jesus Christ. To whom God the Father reveals knowledge about Jesus Christ. In some way, God the Father imparts the truth about Jesus into the hearts of those who belong to him, who then come to Jesus for salvation. This is a creative work carried out by the Father in the hearts of those who first belong to him and who then he gives to Jesus. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, that's God who created everything, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. An amazing, amazing verse. What Paul is saying is that on par with God's creative work of bringing light to shine in darkness, God also does another creative work shining in the hearts of individuals to do what? To teach them, to give them knowledge. Knowledge of what? Give them knowledge so that as they consider Jesus, they see in Jesus the glory of God. As they consider Jesus, they recognize He is the Son of God, sent by the Father, sealed by the Father, doing the works of the Father, speaking the words of the Father, performing the will of the Father. I see it. This is a creative work of God. Everyone who comes to Jesus Christ has first been taught by God and uh, illumined uh, by His creative work. What Jesus is telling the people in John 6 who are about to reject him is that their rejection of him is not in any way a reflection of whether or not he's been sent by the Father, but instead reveals that they have not been taught by the Father. They are not beneficiaries of the new covenant, frankly. They are, have not been taught by God. They are outside the people of God. Why? Well, verse 45 again, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Implication being, you have not come to me, so you have not uh, heard and you have not been taught by the Father. Well, Jesus goes on to present himself as the bread from heaven. 
He's the one sent by God to bring spiritual life and sustenance to everyone who believe in him. This is like too much for this audience to take in. And so it leads to their rejection of him. But look at what it says in verse 63. Jesus says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You're trying to, you're trying to rack your brain, trying to figure me out here, thinking that you're going to get together and have a meeting and uh, come to a conclusion about who I am. No. Remember in John 3, I mean, this is similar to John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus, saying the Spirit goes where he wishes and settles down wherever he wants, right? You must be born again. This is a creative work of God, right? Just like God the Father brings forth birth, uh, the spiritual new birth. I mean, he's hitting on the exact same themes here. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Whether some of you who do not believe, and it goes on to talk about how Jesus knew who, who would believe and who didn't. They're attempting to judge Jesus according to human reasoning. He responds by stating that it's the Spirit, and the Spirit alone who gives life. They were like dead men trying to reason themselves back to life. And isn't it interesting here in our passage then that we see the Trinity? We see the emphasis on the Father. The Father gives some to Jesus. The Father is the one that teaches individuals uh, about Christ. And we see Christ, the one sent and sealed by the Father, the source of eternal life, who, who gives that eternal life to those who, who come to him. And here we see that it's actually the Spirit of God uh, who ultimately carries out that regenerating work, who gives the life. The whole Trinity's here. But Jesus' audience here were like dead men trying to reason themselves back to life. When in reality, what they needed was a creative work of God, which would make them new on the inside. So Jesus continues in verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, so, so Jesus had previously stated that in order to come to him, one must be given to him by the Father. He then said that in order for one to come to him, they must be drawn by the Father. He then said that in order for one to come to him, they must be taught by the Father. Now he says that in order for one to come to him, it must be granted them by the Father. The point is that although his audience believe it's entirely within their power to accept or reject Jesus, as if they can frustrate his earthly ministry through their unbelief, it's actually their unbelief which exposes them, again, as entirely outside the work of God. They're not exposing Jesus to the rejection. Through their rejection, they are exposing themselves. Now, all of that raises some questions about what? Don't raise your hand. Uh, raises some questions about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I mean, if it's all the work of God, then where's our responsibility in all of this? I'm not going to pretend that we have time to answer all these questions. That's why I saved the question to the end so I could say I don't have time to answer the questions. Uh, but it raises some questions. If no one can come to Jesus, which is synonymous with believing in him, unless God grants that belief to them, then what about personal responsibility? If no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him to Jesus, then what about human free will? If no one can come to Jesus unless the Father gives him to Jesus, then what about human culpability? If no one can come to Jesus unless they're first taught by the Father, then what about human wisdom and human decision-making? Well, some would deal with those questions by saying that Although God gives and God draws and God teaches and God grants, he does so in such a way just to bring individuals to the threshold of salvation and then to leave it up to them to decide to believe. Well, that just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. 
It's like bringing the horse to water, right? You can't make him drink. That's the idea. Uh, well, we're not horses, and this isn't about drinking water out of a trough. This is about eternal life. That type of thinking that the drawing and the teaching and the granting and so on is just a matter of maybe giving us a chance to believe doesn't hold up. Look in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's a guarantee in that verse. If the Father gives someone, they will come, right? Now, what does that coming to Jesus mean? Again, synonymous with belief. Coming to Jesus and believing in him are the same thing. Therefore, if anyone whom the Father gives to Jesus, anyone whom the Father gives to Jesus will without a doubt believe in Jesus. There's no giving to Jesus and then hoping that someone might believe in him. That's not the case. All who are given believe. There's no giving a chance to believe. There's no enabling someone to believe and then waiting to see what happens. No, if God gives someone, they will believe. It's clear in verse 37. Notice again that coming to Jesus happens after the Father gives that person to Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The giving happens before the coming. The giving happens before the believing. And it's a guarantee. If God gives someone Jesus, they will believe. Next of all, there's another problem with the idea that God's sovereign working in salvation is simply a matter of giving someone the ability to believe while leaving it up to them to choose whether or not they exercise that ability. As if for God to draw someone to salvation only means to kind of give them a push, give them a suggestion, kind of steer them towards Jesus. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And you say, well, see, it just says that no one can come unless the Father draws them. It doesn't say that if they are drawn, they must come. But if you keep reading, Jesus further explains what it means to be drawn by the Father in verse 45. He defines what it means to be drawn. He says, immediately after verse 44, it's written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He defines what the drawing is. Uh... No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What does that drawing look like? Well, being taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So the drawing is God teaching. The drawing is God revealing, illuminating individuals regarding the identity of Jesus. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There's no exceptions. If they're taught by God, they come to Jesus. If they're drawn by God, they come to Jesus. So... This giving, drawing, teaching, granting cannot simply be a matter of God just giving some illumination, God giving a suggestion, God giving a push in the right direction. This is nothing short of God taking sovereign, unilateral, saving action in the lives of men and women. And be thankful that it is, because biblically we understand that without God's work, we are spiritually dead and completely incapable and unable Uh, to come to Christ in and of our own volition because we're depraved. We are fallen, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. It is God performing a sovereign act of recreation in which he opens the hearts of individuals, shines within them the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and saves them. He teaches them who Jesus actually is and makes Jesus precious in their sight. I'm going to skip over a section here. If you go to the app and you go to sermon notes on the front page, you can read the notes. I'm going to skip over a section. It says right there, if pressed for time, skip. So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, So I'll just say it this way. 
if when we talk about drawing, you say, ha, I've got the answer to that, John 12. If that popped into your mind, go read the sermon notes. I deal with it, okay? But lastly, we'd say that God the Father's giving, drawing, teaching, and granting work cannot refer to him merely giving individuals a chance to be saved because of the way that Jesus appeals to that truth in verse 65. He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. What is he responding to there? This is why I told you. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him, or is granted to him by the Father. What is he responding to? He's responding to their unbelief. If all people are granted the ability to come to Jesus, then it wouldn't make any sense that he would appeal to that truth in order to explain the unbelief of individuals in the crowd. Obviously, not all individuals have been granted uh, belief by the Father. Otherwise, he could not use that as an explanation uh, for their unbelief. He's saying, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father, and it has not been granted to you by the Father, which explains your unbelief. So then, where is personal responsibility in all of this? Doesn't the Bible continually place it in the laps of individuals to decide to believe in Jesus? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. In fact, in, our, in this very passage, it does. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Sounds to me like he's telling the crowd, you have to come to me. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet you do not believe. This is your responsibility. And it's not just here, it's all throughout the New Testament. People are commanded to come to Jesus. At one point, Jesus looks at Jerusalem and says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, how often will I have gathered you together like a hen gathers her chicks? But then he says, but you would not. I wanted to gather you. You resisted. You would not. All throughout the New Testament, we see the truth of personal responsibility. You must decide to place your faith in Jesus Christ. But then we also see these other truths which show us that unless God the Father grants this belief, then some will not come. Again, sometimes in the very same passages we see these truths. At the end of the day, I'm not going to be able to reconcile that for you, but what I can say is that the biblical authors never see these things as contradictory. The biblical authors never try to reconcile the sovereign working of God in salvation and uh, human responsibility and human will. Uh, they don't have the same problem that it appears that some of us have when it comes to understanding these truths uh, together. Jesus did not see these things as contradictory. And so I would just suggest that biblical authors, again, it's not as if we find one author who's saying, God must sovereignly work in salvation, drawing individuals to Jesus, and another one saying, you must decide to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. It's not as if we're looking at two different authors from two different books that maybe weren't communicating with each other. We see these truths sometimes one verse after the other. So the biblical authors didn't see them as contradictory, didn't try to explain one away by the other, didn't overemphasize one over the other, but they accepted these things together. So did Jesus. And so I'm suggesting to you that we simply need to receive the biblical revelation uh, as well and accept them as non-contradictory. In some way, human beings are responsible for coming to Jesus and culpable when they do not come to Jesus. Yet unable to come to Jesus unless the Father grants it to them. How is that reconciled in the mind of God? Uh, one day we will know. But these are not contradictory truths, but perfectly harmonized in the mind of God, whether or not harmonized in our own. So in conclusion, John 6, 65 and 66, 
Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Not everyone who followed Jesus were genuine believers. Again, Jesus anticipated that defection from the beginning of this discourse, and that's why he spoke the words that he spoke. It's for this reason that he went to great lengths to show that God the Father not only predetermined every aspect of his earthly ministry, but also predetermined who would and who would not respond to him in faith. So in this discourse, he first emphasized that it's God the Father who is behind every aspect of his earthly ministry, and second, it is God the Father who is behind every genuine profession of faith. By proving these things, he completely undercut his detractors and his critics. Although they they would claim that he had come in his own name, doing his own will, speaking his own words, performing his own works for his own glory, he proved that he had come in the name of the Father, doing the Father's will, speaking the Father's words, performing the Father's works for the glory of the Father. Next, although his critics believed that it was entirely within their power to accept or reject Jesus, as if they can frustrate his earthly ministry by refusing to believe in him, as if his value in some way was determined by their response to him, he proved that just as everything he does and says comes from the Father, so too those who believe in him have received their faith from God the Father who had given them to Jesus. So practically, though, where does that leave us this morning? If you're a Christian this morning, Thank God that he gave you as a love gift to his son. Thank him that he has shown in your heart the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thank him that he drew you to Jesus. Thank him that he granted you the faith to believe. If you're not a Christian this morning, but you'd like to know that you have eternal life through Jesus, then recognize that the same Jesus who said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, also said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In light of all this talk about sovereignty and human responsibility and salvation, what are you called to do? Respond. Respond to Jesus' invitation to salvation. Choose to trust him as the only Savior from sin. And decide to submit to him as Lord, then what? Then immediately thank God that he's given you to Jesus, has drawn you to him, has taught you about him, and has granted you the faith to believe. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we come to you with meekness, with submission. One thing's abundantly clear as we think about your sovereignty and human responsibility. Clearly, we're not dealing with biblical contradiction. We see these truths strewn all throughout Scripture, every major biblical doctrine, salvation, sanctification, the inspiration of Scripture. They all deal with your sovereign working and human responsibility, and to understand how these things work together is far beyond us. So help us to simply receive biblical revelation. Help us to trust you and your working. Protect us from trying to make the Scriptures conform to our human understanding instead of conforming our understanding to the Scriptures. Protect us from doing damage to these powerful biblical truths through imbalance, seeking to emphasize one over the other. Instead, help us to seek out the biblical balance. So this morning we recognize, Lord, that you are gracious, 
You are sovereign. We are sinners. We're fallen. We recognize our own inability. Without your Holy Spirit, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead and we need to be brought back to life. Something we can't do ourselves. We're spiritually blind and unable to give ourselves vision. Spiritually dead and unable to give ourselves resurrection. At every turn, we are wholly unable to rectify our spiritual deadness without your intervention. So we thank you for your sovereign working. Lord, I just pray that you'd work in the hearts of those this morning who are not yet Christians. Help them to see their need for Jesus. I pray that you do a work in their hearts, revealing these truths to them. And I believe that that's already happening this morning. There are some who are hearing about Jesus, hearing that he's the source of eternal life, hearing that he is your son sent and sealed by you. And they're coming to that knowledge. And you're developing in them that faith. And we just pray that they'd respond to that knowledge uh, by placing their faith in Jesus Christ as the only Savior and as the only rightful Lord. And that they would follow up with that faith by being baptized publicly in his name. So, work. We pray that uh, you'll do that creative work of shining in the hearts of individuals this morning. And for those who are Christians, we just pray that you would help us to just bow the knee. Some biblical truths are so far beyond us, all we can do is recognize your sovereignty uh, and thank you for who you are and for what you've done. So, those of us who are Christians, help us to be thankful recognizing that we haven't come to Jesus of our own volition. We couldn't. That there's not one iota of our salvation for which we can take credit. Uh, But the fact that we've come to Jesus and believed in him is wholly your divine work. So help us to have a sense of utter gratitude and sense of indebtedness to you for our salvation. Um, And then again, we pray that you just help us, on the other hand, to keep that biblical balance, understanding personal responsibility, Uh, that even as Christians, you work to make us like Jesus, but you've given us responsibility to work, to use your means, to discipline ourselves, and so on. Um, So just help us to maintain that balance. But we thank you for this, and we thank you especially for Jesus. We believe that he's the bread of life. He's the only source of spiritual sustenance and spiritual life. And this morning we confess that all that he had was from you, that he was from you, um, that he is your son, and that he is the one of whom you have testified uh, as the source of, uh, the only source of eternal life. Uh, So together, corporately as a church, we make that confession, and we pray that you'd help us to live it out. We thank you for all of this in his name. Amen.